The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hey everybody, I'm Mark Lamont Hill. I am the owner of Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books. I'm also a professor, a scholar, and most importantly, a book nerd. I say book nerd because I don't just love to read books, I'm the guy who loves to read about the book. I love hearing authors talk about how and why they wrote the book, and I love talking to other book nerds about their favorite books. That's why I started Coffee and Books. It's a podcast all about books. Every episode, I sit down over a cup of coffee with the world's biggest authors to discuss the most interesting, controversial, fun, and important books. Sometimes I'll hang out with experts, fans, and other special guests to talk about the greatest books of all time. And today, I am joined by an absolute legend. His name is David Ritz, and David has written over 60 books. And unlike most authors, he is a ghostwriter. A ghostwriter is somebody who writes a book for another person or with another person, allowing that person's name to be at the front, and they hang somewhere in the middle or all the way in the back. David has written books with Marvin Gaye, Aretha Franklin, Tavis Smiley, Buddy Guy, T.I., Willie Nelson. It goes on and on and on. David is really a legend in the literary world and in the music world. He also wrote Sexual Healing with Marvin Gaye. David has done so much, and I am so excited to talk to him. David, good to see you. Hey, man, I appreciate you having me on. Oh, my God. It's such a, it's, it's really a, a pleasure and an honor. Well, I thank you. You are the first ghostwriter that we've had on the show. But Ghostwriter almost doesn't feel like it fully describes like who you are and what you do. Can you talk a little bit about like how do you yeah, see yourself? I mean, you know, when I began, well, how many years ago? 1975, so 40 something years ago, I didn't intend to be a ghostwriter. I chased after um, Ray Charles and I wanted to do his biography and be a biographer. Because when I went to college, the people who won the Pulitzer Prizes were biographers. Ghostwriters didn't win no prizes. And I thought, <laughs> okay. It was hard chasing him down. I chased him down. I talked him into it. And I got an agent. And an agent said, well, you can do a biography, an autobiography. And I said, well, what's, how do I do autobiography? He said, well, you ghost it. Well, what does that mean? Well, you pretend you're him and you get his voice. And, and I said, I don't think I want to do that. I said, i got to have my point of view. And then he asked me a question that changed my life. And the question was, what book would you rather read? A book written by an egghead like you about Ray Charles with your you know, analysis and all that shit or Ray Charles's own voice telling his own story. And I said, oh, I'd much rather read Ray's voice telling the story. And he said, then write the book you want to read, not the book that you believe you should write. And that was deep. Wow. Write the book you want to read. And I had so many, because I've been to college and graduate school and blah, blah, blah. I had so many sort of notions in my head of the kind of author that I wanted to become, it had nothing to do with the kind of books that I wanted to read, particularly about you know African American culture, which has always been my sort of main interest, and ever since I was eight or nine years old. So anyway, so to make a long story short, I got the gig. I started interviewing Ray. I started hearing the music in his voice, and I realized to be a good ghostwriter, I have to make music. In other words, for this book to read right, you will have to hear what I was hearing, which is there is musicality in the voice because you learn to speak before you learn to sing. And he takes his conversational rhythms and he applies them to his music. And then my job was to capture those conversational rhythms and turn it into prose. And then I thought, holy shit, this is art, by which I mean it isn't just taking a transcript and typing it up and because his voice isn't in that transcript. You have to create it. You read a book with your eyes, but you hear it, and you, you kind of need to read with your ears, and you need to sort of write with your ears. So this whole sort of notion of creation of voice a voice that was not my own, but that was coming through me, became the artistic challenge of my entire career. And when my ego got under control, which it had to, because it was his book, not my book, 
even though I struggle with ego like everybody else in the world. Let me, let me pause you there for a minute because that's actually, you, you said a couple things that are so interesting to me. First thing is, so th this book with Ray Charles in particular, which is like the big project that puts you on the map, uh, this mm -hmm. is Brother Ray. Mm -hmm. And you say it's, it's his book, not yours. Mm -hmm. Did Ray Charles see it that way? Yeah. Yeah, and I told him that. In other words, the very first thing I told him once I gave up, this is a terrible kind of pun, but once I gave up the ghost or I embraced a ghost or however you're supposed to say it, I told him, man, you control this book. You have all the power to put in whatever you want. But what I learned is once you give up power, you gain power because power is off the table and power is not an issue and it becomes a jam. In other words, it, and jazz for me is everything because it's my first love and my first, the first time I understood art was jazz. Nobody had to tell me. I just knew that the relationship between Miles and Train and Winton Kelly and blah, blah, blah was all this magical, unspoken jam. So I understood, and that's not about who's in charge. That's about the era is taken over the musical conversation. And I realized with Ray, the spirit is going to have to overtake our literary conversation. Just as you and I are talking here, we want the spirit to overtake our conversation. So anytime you're in a human encounter, I'm thinking of, you know, Cannonball or Horace Silver or Herbie or whoever it is, because those are the guys who taught me how you convert. Wow. So after you write the book with Ray Charles, mm -hmm. does the career just take off? Or are artists just no. calling you now like, the, hey, uh, no. write mine? No, the opposite. I mean, that's what's so weird, because I thought, okay, I've written this book with Ray Charles. It's a good book. It got good reviews. You know, it's so, here comes everybody. Here comes Stevie Wonder. Here, They're all going to call me up. No one called me. No one did anything. And I had to hustle. And I had to start chasing after people because the gigs were not coming. Why do you think that was? I just think the publishing world, it's hard to get book deals you got to get people to do their books when they're prepared to do them. If you're too early, they don't really you know, talk about it. I don't know, man. I, all I know is that I struggled. And I be, began chasing after uh, Aretha Franklin, and that was like a 20-year chase. Well, let's so talk about that. I caught up with her. But the chase, it took forever. And so in the meantime, I chased after Marvin Gaye, who was my favorite artist along with Ray and Aretha. Like if I had three artists as a kid that had, who I listened to more than anybody else, they were Ray, Marvin, and uh, Aretha. But there's other people like Charlie Parker and Lester Young, but they were dead. Right. But in terms of people who were alive and well, those to me were the big three. So she had no interest. I talked to her and Ray introduced me. She had no interest. And then Marvin put out Here My Dear, which I don't know if you know that album. Oh, yeah. It's actually, oh. it's, it, by the way, and, and, I, and I, this is a very controversial uh, point of view, probably not to you, but to many, but I consider yeah. Here My Dear to actually be one of his most interesting and creative yeah. albums. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, man. It killed me. I, I, it, it just, I could not stop listening to it. And the way I hustled him was it was attacked by the LA Times, and I wrote a letter in defense of it saying, y'all are crazy. This is like Ellington or Mingus or Stevie Wonder. This is a great album. And he called me. And that was my intention, that he, that someone would show him my defense of him. And so that became the next project. But it was a complicated project because he was a complicated guy. And it took years. And there was no deal because you couldn't pin him down. And he was being chased by the IRS. And he went to Hawaii and went to England. He went to, I had to go to Europe. And and in the end, here's the irony of ironies, it was not a ghost-written book because by the time I was prepared to write the book, he had been killed. So right. he, he, he wasn't there to approve the book. So, so let, yet, let's walk through that because this is actually a really important point you're making. And, and by the way, Divided Soul, the book uh, that uh, you're talking about, is one of your most celebrated works. It's considered a staple for well, any you. anyone who wants to understand Marvin Gaye. In fact, my first engagement with you, I was a, I was a teaching assistant for Michael Eric Dyson in his Marvin mm. Gaye class. And you came 
Yeah, uh, Harry and I came. Yeah, yeah Harry, you, you and uh, Harry came, Wander. right. And yeah. it was amazing. And Divided Soul was a book that these college students at University of Penn are reading. So it was an incredibly yep. important book. Here My Dear comes out December of 1978, I think maybe yep. the 15th. So you're writing a letter right at the, the top of 1979. Right. Yeah, it came out a Christmas time, I remember. And I began chasing after him in January. In January. And so you're chasing from 1979 until, say, 1983? Yeah, I caught him. I caught him early because he did see the letter. Right. He was under attack. He did appreciate having somebody who understood it because, you know, he was alienated from Motown and Gord. He was, you know, I don't have to tell you the story. So we hooked up and hit it off immediately because, you know, the thing about uh, um, Ray was very stern. I mean, he, he was a, you know, absolutely brilliant guy. He was mean. <laughs> I think you're being polite. He's mean. Yeah. But he was scary because, you know, he was powerful and blind and that seemed to give him more power. And I was just, scared of him. Now, ultimately, it all would turn out all right. But it was like sort of working with your uncle, your mean <laughs> uncle, you know, and he was sort of militaristic. You had to be early. And if you were late, you were fined. And that old James Brown shit kind of thing. Marvin was like a brother. I mean, he was cool. We were close in age. He was relaxed. You can get high with him. The whole other story. But it was the opposite. And Marvin personally was very much like his music. He was very sort of mellow and sweet, but also had an aristocratic, I mean, he was like a prince. Just all these complicated elements to him made you want to be with him all the time. So I dropped everything and I just began. And then, like I said, it was a tumultuous time in his life when he was going broke and getting divorced and getting divorced from Motown and doing an album he really didn't want to do and finally got off of Motown. So I had to find out how do I fit into the mix? How do I slide into the matrix of the Marvin Gaye life? And somehow I did it, you know, with the grace of God, because I, when I look back, I think to myself, how in the world? Did I, did I hang in there? I right. mean, you know, but I was determined, man, because, you know, I love Marvin Gaye. To me, Marvin Gaye is like, you know, Mozart or Beethoven or somebody like that. I mean, if you get a chance to work with Mozart, it doesn't matter what's happening in your life. You just drop everything and hang out with the cat. And, and your plan at that time was to, was to write a ghost written book for Marvin. Positively, that's always my plan. That remains my plan to this day with anybody that I work with. Oh, that, I'm going to go back to circle back to that because yeah. that's, that's an important yeah. note. I, I just, yeah. this Marvin Gaye thing has always fascinated me. So you, yeah. you're, you're like, I'm going to write a book with Marvin. And so for you, it was like, I'm just going to go wherever he is to keep up with him. There's a logistical piece to that, right? Like I need to, I need to be with Marvin. It's not just internet. It's not like there's, you know, it's not easy to keep track of him, but also you wanted to track his genius. Well, yeah. And, and also certain angels came along. This um, woman named Susan Taylor, you might know at the time, was the editor of Essence. Yeah. She gave me some bread that I used to buy a plane ticket to go to Europe and caught up with them and let me do a profile of Marvin in Europe. And, but I couldn't get a book deal because, first of all, nobody, he was cold at the time. You got to remember, after Got to Give It Up, which was his last big hit before sexual healing, he turned cold. And editors just weren't interested in a Marvin Gaye biography or autobiography. Wow, he just... As crazy as that... Right, it's hard to imagine Marvin Gaye not being popular and hot at the time. So by the time he's, he's in Austin, he was in Austin, I think, like 81-ish, maybe? Yeah, I, I was here in April of 82. Okay, and that's when Marvin was also completely trapped in, 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 drug, in a drug addiction, right? No, no, he was... He, he, he always liked weed. He was always smoking weed, but he'd given up cocaine... Tiny bit, he would hit it once in a while. But no, he was, Ostend was really his kind of cleanup town. I'm sorry, that's what I meant. I'm sorry. I'm, uh, yeah, he was, he was right. caught in drug addiction and went to Ostend to kind of dry out. Right, and he dried out enough to do that Midnight Love album. And then he came back to the United States, which was returning to the scene of the crime, and he got right. crazy. He went crazy, you know. Uh, he went crazy on drugs and lost his mind. And was writing a book important to him at that time? I mean, he, I, there's so many things are going on with him. He, he's trying to no. get his life together. And you're trying to get him to finish I don't his think, book, right? I think, uh, you know, without sounding like a, a jerk, I think he appreciated me. He certainly appreciated the love I had for him because I would articulate it all the time. I would tell him, man, 
I adore your music. I, I think you're a crazy genius, you know? So I never hold back the fact that I'm a fan. But I also think in the case of Sexual Healing that we wrote, he knew he needed a literary component to his life. He needed that, he knew that he needed this life and its complexity required some kind of documentation. And that's why I was tolerated, I think, because he trusted me as a guy who would sort of document his life, not out of anything but love and admiration for his music. And also, I thought he was a beautiful person. I mean, let me also say a hugely important part of my life is, you know, I was born Jewish, lived Jewish, and converted to Christianity late in life. And he was the first guy who really kind of preached to me. So. That was huge. I mean, and, and that's a whole long story, and I've written a book about it called The God Groove. But, yeah. but it was culminating with Sexual Healing, which was our last you know, work together, the last jam we have. And it just isn't me. If you look back at the great works of Marvin Gaye, he always had people to collaborate with. What's going on with a collaboration? Uh, I want you with a collaboration with Leon Ware. They've all been, uh, let's get it on with the collaboration with the Townsend. He's always been a collaborator. So he's one of those artists that likes to be sparked by other people who right. are energetic and have ideas. So Marvin's killed April 1st of 84. The, right. the book comes out in 1985. What was the process of going from the ghostwriter of a book he didn't get to approve to the co-author of a book? Well, I had to become a biographer, and it's happened only two other times. I mean, I can do it. <laughs> I mean, I can be a biographer. I don't like it as much as ghostwriting, but I had no choice because I had his voice because I had been with him. I had out hundreds of hours of interviews with him. So I was confident. But if you read the book, I mean, you have read the book, but I think one of the reasons the book works is he's always talking in the book. He talks as much as I talk. And so that gave me the confidence to do it. But the other reason I was driven to do it was for the same reason I wrote my biography of uh, Aretha after doing her autobiography, and this really sounds egotistical and forgive me, everybody, but I didn't think anybody else could do it but me because I was in there. I knew the cat and I loved him. And I listened to the music as much as anybody in the world. And I watched him record in the studio and I watched him overdub. And, and so I had hours and hours. And so I felt obligated. And I felt like history needs to have a good record of Marvin Gaye. And, you know, I only regret that I didn't know Curtis Mayfield. Only, I, I mean, he isn't the only person that required that, but, but that's one of the reasons I'm so big on ghosting is that you really want to have the voice of the artist. And, but how and, do you do that? I mean, one of the things, you know, when you ghost wrote for right. uh, Aretha Franklin, her first right. book in 99, I believe, Up From These Roots, right, and it felt to me like an Aretha Franklin infomercial. It felt like yeah. it felt like Aretha telling the story that she wanted the world to know. Right. And I know that that's part of why you did the biography, but when you're in when you're in the moment and you're writing with a person, mm-hmm. you know, and you say the world needs to hear their voice, how do you make sure that or even well, know that the artist is even giving you their voice because they give you Well, what you, you pray. I mean, you kind of it's a prayerful thing. I mean, and and in the case of Aretha, I didn't get her voice because she hid it in my estimation. I mean, she had a voice, but it was like you say, it was a calculated voice. And it was a humbling experience because when I got the gig, uh, again, you know, I had done Ray and I'd done Marvin and this was Aretha. And uh, man, when she told me I had to give the happiest day of my life, I mean, I just thought, thank you, Jesus. I cannot believe this, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then people told me, man, you're never going to get over the wall. You're never going to crack it. She's so protective. And I said, man, I'm going to reach down and whatever (laughs) ounce of charm I have, I'm going to put such a loving on her and be so sweet and patient and understand. And I did not make a dent dent in the armor. Now, again, we had some good times in the kitchen eating and listening to gospel music and Albertino. I, I, I mean, I don't mean that there weren't some good times. And she could be really charming and sweet. And she loved music. And I love music. And 
she taught me some gospel I didn't know, and I played with some jazz she didn't know. And so, I mean, those times were great. But, it, but the actual work of getting into the text was, oh, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. Don't ask me that. So I caved, and I lost, and I had no choice. Because when you're a ghost writer, if you're ghosting a person who doesn't want to seem vulnerable and doesn't want to dig deep and do the things which I think require making a book interesting, then it, you turn out a book that ain't too interesting. And that's what happened. So, and, so, so, but is that like a, that's a different vision of what a ghostwriter is than some people. For some people, ghostwriting is just a job. It's just a function. It's just like being a, tra yeah. a, a transcriber or an interpreter or any other functional job where I just come in and tell the world whatever you want to say and I'm just your interpreter. Whereas you see it as actually an artistic and almost even spiritual practice of, of bringing something out of people that Positively. otherwise wouldn't be there. Yep. Listen, this really sounds terrible, but do you know, I think of the Holy Ghost, and again, I love the Holy Ghost. I love the words Holy Ghost. I think it's the ultimate mystery of the sort of manifestation of God. But yeah, I mean, it's a spiritual endeavor it's a literary endeavor and i need to bring all of me to it because it's going to come through me but it has to originate with the person and somehow i have to calibrate how much is me how much is them and create this voice that rings with authenticity mm. and that's Art, but what's interesting about the word art is you think of it, the word art is also associated with artificial or artifice. Yeah, it's an object, it's not reality. So, I am creating a character. This character lives on the page and has to step off the page. But just like a sculptor is sculpting the clay, I got to sculpt the words and I have to create this character and the character I want, the books that I've loved that I've done the most, the books of Zeta James or B.B. King or Buddy Guy or Smokey, were all books where I got the heart of the artist exposed. Mm. And that I was able to do because they trusted me because they knew that I loved them. I mean, I really love them and I'm so grateful for the music that they made. And I was so curious about the history of their life that would lead them to make the music that they made. And therefore, they gave me the love and trust of opening up their heart. So yeah, it's, it's a very deep experience. And that's why I enjoy it so much. And that's why, I mean, listen, that's like, Robert Caro, who wrote the LBJ thing forever and ever. I mean, these are really, and you know, people who have, Richard Elman, who wrote James Joyce, you know, I have huge admiration for biographers who spend 10 years, you know, Peter Kwaromnik's biography of Elvis is a masterful work. It's just not what I, you know, Peter never knew Elvis. You know, I can't write a book without knowing the person. Now, that doesn't mean books can't be written when you don't know the person. It's just obviously. not your jam. Right. It's just not my jam. Wow. So the level of depth and, and connection, admiration, even spirituality that you bring to yeah. ghostwriting, do you think that that should be the standard for ghostwriting or, or are you just doing something more than ghostwriting? The guy who just comes in and shows up and does a celebrity biography or autobiography or a memoir. I mean, would you say that's not authentic ghostwriting or is that just baseline ghostwriting? You're think, like, super you know, man, I can't pontificate about anything. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, people do what people do. I don't have a, for example, the autobiography of Malcolm X, which is a beautiful book, is written by Alex Haley. It's a ghostwritten book, right? Right. It's probably Alex Haley's very best. I mean, Roots is great. He had a lot of help on it. But, I mean, he really got Malcolm's voice. William Dufty's book on Billy Holiday, a lot of people don't like. I love it. I was a young kid, and I read it, and I heard her. So, yes, I think it is a art form that, should be respected, taught, done. But you've got to have enough confidence to know that when your book comes out, when my book on B.B. King came out, yeah. a lot of people loved it. And I remember going to a party and saying, man, I love that book. I love that book. And I said, well, you know, 
I helped them and they said, you did? I didn't see, you know, cause you know, your name's at the bottom little. Right. But that's a compliment because the compliment is I didn't hear you. I heard him. I didn't hear your voice. I heard the voice that you helped create. So all of my education, which was in Italian and English literature, was all about you creating your own voice, you know, Shakespeare or Dante or Chaucer or James Baldwin, whoever. This is the opposite. This is creating another person's voice. And I once, I won't even name the guy, but he's a a famous sort of novelist. And we were on a plane together and he asked me what I did. And I said, ghostwriter. And he said, why would you do that, man? That's, you know, you know, if a person can't tell their own story, why should they tell it? And I told him, hey, if the Uddy guy or the Neville brothers all have a great story and they haven't learned to write a 400 page book, why should the world not get to hear their story? You know, it's hard to write a book. Not everybody has those chops. So it, there's no real argument against it. I, and, I mean, stories need to be told. But, you know, you got to love others and people and you got to be curious. You got to really be curious and you have to leave yourself to a large degree behind. And that took me a long time to learn because like everybody else, look at me, I like attention. I like the awards. I like to be praised. I like you know, all that stuff. But my job has humbled me <laughs> in order for me to succeed at the work. You can't be a ghost writer and be a sort of megalomaniac. It, it, it just ain't going to work. So that, that was one of the things that I was going to ask you about. I've, I've ghostwritten before. I don't know if I ah. ever, I've never said that in public, but I've ghostwritten a book before. All and right. I got to tell you, when mm-hmm. you write something and then someone else gets credit for it. Yeah. I don't know, man. It, there's something about seeing <laughs> someone else's name on your shit and, and the world celebrating them. You're like, but it's not even theirs! You know, and, and maybe it's I'm hard. just not mature enough <laughs> to be able to handle no, that. No, no, listen, listen. I, it's hard. Ego is strong. We need ego to survive. And I, a strong ego, a healthy ego, I mean, I'm not looking to lose my ego entirely. I mean, I, you know, I like, Buddhism and Eastern thought and all. And, but I also know I am a Western hustler you know, <laughs> trying to make a living and all that stuff. So I am not letting go of my ego. But what happens is something else kicks in. And that's the artistic process, which to me is so exciting. You know, I'm doing a book now with a Kim, the R&B cat. And, you know, I love him. You know, he's like an Al Jarreau and, and, and he's had incredible story. Uh, and he's just a brilliant guy. And I'm just all caught up in his world. And that means a whole lot more to me. Now, when the book comes out, it'll say Cam. It'll say with David Ritz at the very bottom. And most people won't even look at my name. But at this point, I don't care because what am I doing all day? I'm doing work that is bringing me joy and generating energy. You know, I'm 76 years old and I'm working harder than I've ever worked. I've got more gigs than I ever have. And I want more gigs than I've ever had because I realize what a valuable surface I am rendering. The idea of getting gigs is an interesting one. You know, as writers, typically the idea is you have an idea for a book, you write a proposal, you send it off, somebody wants it. Or you write something on spec. You write a book, if you're confident enough, and you say, hey, I want this thing. Right. How does a successful, someone like you at this stage of your successful ghostwriting career get the job? Does an artist track you down now? No, I'm still chasing. I mean, I'm not too, you know, like the temptation say, I'm not too proud to big. Um, <laughs> I believe in cold calls. I'll call up cold. I mean, and I mean, more people are calling me than before. But, you know, I have an agent who's aggressive and, and he'll chase after people. Who have you chased after? Who have you? Who have I've you chased after Kendrick. You know, I met Kendrick. I did some work for Kendrick Joe Lamar in an interview. Yeah, you know, because I this is early on. I thought Kendrick was crazy genius and made me nuts. He was so good, and I chased after Grand Master, Master Flash. Flash. I did a book with him. Uh, a couple of hip hop books that I'm going to do. I think in the next couple of years. So, and you know, hip hop is a whole nother branch of the tree, which I have enormous respect for as a literary form, linguistically, starting a book with uh, 
the Snoop Dogg, which is a ghostwritten novel. I've written ghostwritten novels with T.I. So in other words, if there is a linguistic challenge and a brilliant mind behind it, as many of these guys have, then call me, you know, I'm down for the task. And particularly in my old age, I want to grow and kind of stretch. You know, Ezra Pound once said, old men should be explorers. And that's what I'm trying to do. And that's why doing a book with Snoop or doing a book with, with Cam has me exploring new territories. There's an idea, though. I mean, and we talk, you talk about humility and right. sort of sort of trying to ex- not extinguish, but at least keep the, the, the ego at arm's length at times. Yeah. Yeah. But you're the ghostwriter whose name is on everybody's book. I mean, there are a lot of ghostwriters who are anonymous, but a lot of your books, it's like so-and-so with David Ritz. And while your name is smaller, yeah. is it important to you for your book to be on the cover? It's important for me for the book to be in cover because of my ego. However, I have written books where my book where my name has not been on the cover. And I'll tell you a story. Years ago, I met a guy and he had done some Big Shots book, uh, a business guy, I forgot, some corporate yeah. captain, right? And his name wasn't on it. And I did, it didn't have as told to her with. And I said to the ghost, man, your name's not at the book. And he said, I don't care. A true ghost shouldn't care. And I thought to myself at the time, I hope to get there one day. Now, um, <laughs> because I did see it as the truth. That I, that, he, that's sort of how I see it. I, I, yeah. I, I've been trying to understand the logic. I always assumed that the really, really successful rich people could afford to keep the ghostwriter's name off the book. Yeah. And, and that if, you're, if the ghostwriter's name was on the book, it was either because they couldn't afford to, to keep him off or yeah. the ghostwriter was so big and such yeah. a big name that it would actually draw more people to read it. Well, I don't think there's ever a case where my name on the book is added to the sales appeal of the book. I mean, there are people like you, and I appreciate you who know my work, but, you know, 99.99% of the people don't. So I don't have like a brand name. I'm not a Stephen King or whoever. But I still like to see my name in print. I still like to see my name on the book. But in the last couple of years, I've had instances where the person didn't want my name on the book. Yeah. And I was cool. And I kind of said, I didn't throw a fit. If they would have said yes, I would have been happier, you know, but it didn't kill me. Whereas 10 years ago, it would have killed me. So again, do you charge more for that? I'm just curious. No, no. I mean, I, I mean, you can, you can, okay. You don't want my name on the book. Give me another $10,000, but I, I never have. It always kind of surprises me that a person who's really has had their book written for them would object because no one expects the other person to write a book. I mean, it isn't that, I mean, well, it depends though, right? I mean, like you wrote a book with Cornell West. Yeah. For example, which which actually, again, one of my favorites. There, there's some yeah. things I wish had been added, but in right. general, I, I thought you wrote a, you wrote that memoir with Cornell West. Obviously, yeah. had your name not been on that one, we would have assumed Cornell wrote his own. Well, and that's an interesting, I was going to talk about that because that was so interesting to me. Cornell was so cool about the whole thing and so understanding of the dialogue we had that helped generate the book because he did write a lot of it and i wrote a lot of it because he's a hands-on guy and he's a he's a brilliant guy but his point was yeah man i mean we did do this together and it wasn't as told to book in other words it was a book where i got to ask real personal things about his relationship with women and you know it wasn't an academic book it was a popular book or written as I'm a pop commercial guy. I write pop commercial books. I'm not an ac- academic. So I have a lot of respect for Cornell for allowing that. And ultimately, to have my name on the book at the bottom with is the truth. I mean, in that there is this person who has helped write some of it, half of it, a third of it, all of it in some cases. But if it ain't there, there's more important things, which is the work. There were people when you wrote that Cornell memoir, which again, I, I actually enjoyed a great deal and learned yeah. a bunch about, and I could feel your presence in it because Cornell has such a deep connection to, to black music, black culture, mm-hmm. 
Right. Um, and, and you obviously have the same sort of appreciation. So when he's talking yeah. about being a blues man and, and he's talking about his right. relationships and he's digging through these things, I can right. feel the kind of connection between you and that, him. And it, it felt very symbiotic. It was, it, yeah. it's, it's beautiful. But when people criticized him and said, uh -huh. you got too pop, one of the things they said yeah. is you even got David Ritz to work with you. And it's like your name yeah. almost became synonymous with the word some people used was hack. Yeah. And, and some of that was about you and some of it is about the practice of ghostwriting. Yeah, how, yeah. how do you, well, I, I mean, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> you know, I, I just don't care. I mean, there may be part of me that is a hack in this regard. I mean, I like when a person calls you a name rather than try to resist, try to own it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I am hacking. I mean, I have written <laughs> 67 books. I am hacking away every day and I am hustling and, and I'm definitely a hustler. I, I, I mean, hack. Now I got to figure that out whether I want to embrace that term. I may wind up calling myself a hack, you know what I'm saying? But there is maybe a deeper truth to that, that here is a guy who is doing an or inordinate amount of work, writing these books in very, I, I tend to write a book in somewhere between three months and six months or seven months. I can write a book in two months. There is a hacky vibe to it all. And that's fine. Now, if hack means the product is shit, then I, I don't feel good because I think my books are good and I think they have music and, and rhythm and I think you're grooved up. I think they're easy to read and I think they instruct and I think a lot of them have documented people like Jimmy Scott and Eddie James who are enormously important artists to me in my life that would never had their story told had I not chased after them. And I chased after Jimmy Scott and Enda James. And so maybe you do need to hack away. You know, maybe you can't just be, uh, I'm not going to do it unless it's Sonny Rollins or take five years and some high cultural standards. And listen, I like funk. I want to be funky. I think I am funky. Lee Dorsey said everything I'm going to, everything I do is going to be funky. From now on, that's been my mantra. And I think funk and hack ain't that far away. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Throughout this conversation, you've mentioned a lot of important artists. Yeah. Obviously, I haven't read all 60 of your books, but I've read maybe 20 of them. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Your connection, you, you're deeply ensconced in Black life, Black culture. Some would ask, I've asked this question, yeah. you know, what does it mean for a white guy for his primary intellectual work to be, and artistic yeah. work to be, the kind of avid, literary avatar for Black culture and Black music. How do you make sense of that for yourself? Well, I don't, I don't really think of me as an avatar. I've always, ever since I've been eight years old or earlier, I've been, I've been jumping up and down to music that makes me jump and down. And it's not been an intellectual choice. It's not, it has nothing to do with kind of politics. It's pre-political or post-political. It's just, the music I've always loved. When I was a kid, man, I've been going to, back in the day, you could go to uh, Birdland when you were 10 or 11 years old. They had a uh, inner gallery and I was listening to, you know, Miles and Monk and Mingus. And then I moved to Texas during the golden age of gospel and I got to hear Sam and the Soulsters and the Caravans and 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 the Blind Boys. And, I, and then I knew a lot about jazz. I knew nothing about the blues. And there was, you know, B.B. and Bobby Bland and, and, and Ike and Tina in tiny little clubs with her hair going around. And so that's where I went. I just chased the music down. And uh, I remember my first interview I did with Janet Jackson, I think between Control and Rhythm Nation. And, you know, we wound up doing a book together and everything and love her. And I remember talking to her and her telling me, you're awfully comfortable talking to black people, aren't you? And I said, <laughs> I, I guess I haven't really was, thought was, was about she, it. I'm just curious, was Janet, and by the way, the book was called uh, True You. I think it came out right, in, in 2011. Right, right, right. Was Janet Jackson saying that like, was she like astonished by it? Was she marveling at it? Or was she like, I think she Whoa. was just comfortable. She she was just not feeling protective, I think. And 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 she she knew I was relaxed. And of course, you know, I was a fan. I loved, I loved Control. And I loved Prince and Jimmy and Terry. And I liked all the Minneapolis Funk, and later I got to do the uh, Morris book, which which I loved working with him. So I mean, I was in it. I mean, I I thought the whole Minneapolis thing was a 
a huge step kind of forward for R&B and the instrumentation, the whole thing. And of course, you know, Jimmy and Terry, that's what they gave her. And she jumped on it and, you know, went to the top with it. So again, she knew how much I appreciated her and how different I knew she was from her brother, who I loved, you know, but that she had different producers. She had a different story. She had a different voice. And I could celebrate that. The Jackson family is notoriously uh, closed-lipped about lots of stuff. As you're working with Janet Jackson on her book, were there spaces where you felt like, hey, she's just not going there, or was she... Or was she well, that's true of everybody. I, I mean, first of all, nobody tells you everything. Nobody. I ain't telling you everything about me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's just certain things you just ain't going to tell. But I think Janet... I, I mean, I had known... Uh, Tito and I had written some uh, songs together... I had met Jermaine, who I was a fan of Jermaine's. I never knew Michael. I was introduced him, to him by Quincy when they were doing a thriller, but we never talked. So I didn't know him. I never went to Neverland. But I think in Janet's case, we met at a time when she was looking for her individuation, or if that's the right word. And, and I saw that. I saw that here's a young brilliant woman looking to make her mark, find her voice, carve out her career. And I think that's why, you know, we got close and we've remained close and I admire her so much. I mean, she's strong. She's really, really a strong person. And she's different than the other Jackson. She's the baby and she's got to kind of look up at everybody and see what's happening. And she's got some objectivity about it. And so she is different, but they're all charming. I mean, I've never... The Jacksons are most among the most charming. That's uh, very true. <laughs> very, I enjoy them. I enjoy them all. No, every everyone that I've met has been incredibly charming, incredibly yeah. warm, uh, and generous. Yeah. Even and, and, yeah. and, and no, I mean they're, yeah. they're yeah. there's a an ethical question that comes up around boundaries uh, right. whenever you work with someone under any right. circumstance. As right. ghostwriter, are there ever moments where you felt like I'm I'm too close? where you felt like I'm too connected, you know, to the, to the person, to the point that I can't tell their story properly. No. And one of the reasons is I always let them know that they have the final cut. And they do. In other words, I would never put out a book as a ghostwriter that they didn't approve, nor would I. Now, the exception was Aretha, and that's a really important case. Uh, I haven't read the question, but uh, I guess what I mean in terms of the closeness is more, is there a moment where your closeness to the artist, for example, in the case of Marvin Gaye, is such that if you admire someone and you adore their music and you think they're the greatest thing since sliced bread, that you're not able to tell the story objectively? Because of course, if they look at it, they're going to say, Well, I don't tell it objectively. I do protect them. I mean, because of my love for them, I am protective. And they feel my protection. And that's part of why they open up to me. And that's why I've argued that my book on Marvin Gaye is just one book on Marvin Gaye. It isn't the book on Marvin Gaye. Mm. There's a lot of stuff I didn't put in that book to protect him. But th- this is where I get con- not confused, but conflicted. Right. Yeah. So because if the idea is to say I'm going to bring out the best truth I know. Right. And, and tell the best story I can and to bring out the truest self of them. If I know that I'm leaving stuff out, yeah. if my inclination is to protect them, mm-hmm. then am I really telling the story in their voice fully? Well, listen, it's a messy thing. I believe. Listen, as a person, I am a mess. You know, I, as a writer, I am messy. I'm not looking for clear distinction. So my answer, my honest answer to your question is, in my being protective of artists I love, it's kind of like, just think I'm a portrait painter and your nose is a little bit too big or your eyes are too big or your chin is too angular and I'm going to do your portrait. I may change it a little bit to make you look a little bit better. But I'm not guilty about that Mm. because you've entrusted me with your portrait and you've entrusted a person that loves you. Now, because I believe in some funk, I'm going to keep it funky. You know, I'm not going to take out all the warts because the warts are what makes you 
a human being, but I'm going to use my discretion about how many warts to include. <laughs> That's fair. Because like in the case of Marvin Gaye, Ultimately, that's a dark story. That is a very dark story. But for me to have told that story and include the darkness, because you can't tell it honestly without including the darkness, I had to come from a place of love. Mm. And I think the reason Divided Soul has lasted as a book is because most people who, who read the book feel how much I love him. And therefore, I can get pretty dark. And, and it's essentially the truth of what happened. Now, things got even funkier than, the, you know, there's some shit I didn't put in there. But you get the idea. The guy was going nuts. But you said so, you, you say you protected him and other art. What are you protecting them from? I'm trying to strike a balance where the facts of their life, which may be negative, or the facts of their behavior, which might be seen by some as negative or abusive, don't overwhelm the majesty of their music and their art. In other words, I want to celebrate their art and leave people with an appreciation of their art. And if the oh, facts of and if the negative facts of their life are too dramatically drawn or melodramatically drawn, that what you're going to leave that book with is, oh my God, that motherfucker to death and that, I can't believe, and you're not going to leave with the sense of beauty. So again- but, but how are you able to capture it? So like, you, you know the whole story of Marvin and still think he's extraordinary, right? Right, right. There's a wonderful scene in Mad Men where, mm -hmm. I don't know if you watch Mad Men. Yeah, no, everyone. Oh, okay. So there's this moment where Don Draper- his true identity is known, and this woman who's known his true identity for years says to him, I know everything about you, and I still love you, right? Yeah. There's a way that you knew everything about Marvin and still loved him. Why can't we trust the reader to do that? To, to hear the darkest shit and still say, you know what, Marvin's the greatest, or the darkest shit about B.B. King or Ray Charles. Ray went dark, too, and we still appreciate who he is as a person. Because it seems like you're saying, I see the beauty and the wholeness of this person, but if I told the the, the reader that same, that same story and gave them the same picture, they may not draw the proper conclusion then? Well, I don't have a clear answer, and I think it's a great question, and I ask myself that every day as I work on every book, yeah. and I don't have a clear answer. I have an instinct, and my instinct is that discretion is required in storytelling. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> <fair>. and, <laughs> and my discretion is very subjective. And I can't, if you ask me to chart it out or outline it or delineate it, I can do it, man. It's instinct. Mm. But my gut instinct will tell me, this Jimmy Scott story, man, it's, it's, it's going to turn people, I better <laughs> leave this one out. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and because it's powerful and, and it's, it's kind of like, here's an example of ghosting. Take the word. Motherfucker, right? It's right. a powerful word. It's an important word. But if you use it too much, like, and many jazz musicians, many R&B musicians love the word. They use it in noun and adjective, everything, you know, verb. Ray Charles would say, motherfuck it, you know, as a verb. I say, you know, I've never heard of the verb before, you know. But you have to determine, if you use it once every four pages, that really sounds like they're using it a lot. But if you use it every two or three lines, it's like putting too much salt and pepper in the soup. You can't eat it. So how you spice language or how you spice a story is always a matter of discretion. And, you know, I hope I have discretion, you know, and some people might say I don't have enough or I got too much. No, that, that's absolutely possible. I, I don't think there's a right answer either. I was just genuinely curious to know sort of yeah. how you yeah. how you navigate it. It's a messy process. Yeah. It's, and listen. And often in the process, I am confused, but I believe in confusion. I don't want to be unconfused until I am unconfused. I want to live <laughs> in confusion as long as my confusion is genuine. And this whole area that you're talking about is a confusing area. And, and I have no glib answer. I heard you talk about Janet Jackson and you assessed her and sort of mm -hmm. her desire to kind of distinguish herself from her family. I've heard you talk about right. other folk. 
there's a way that you're like psychologist as you're as you're as you're yeah. working with people. What are some other roles you play? Is it like psychologist? Is it therapist? Is it who are you to these people? And and, and in your mind? Well, I think first of all, I become their friend. I think you have to be a friend. You have to be trusted. You know, my sister is a uh, psychologist, and I've been through psychologist my whole life, so I believe in it, and I've had all sorts of therapy. So I'm a patient. I'm not now, but I have for most of my life. So I love the process of introspection. So yeah, I definitely am that. I'm a believer, but it doesn't mean everyone's got to believe like I am. I'm not a literalist, and I don't believe I have the truth. I have a truth that worked for me. I have a spiritual story that works for me. I don't think that story has to work for everybody, but I bring that spirit to my work. I try to pray with the person before we work. Really? Every time. Yeah. Now, some people don't want to, other people say, love it. Yeah, yeah. I just got through doing a book with Lenny Kravitz, and, you know, he's a believer, and prayer was a really important part of our process, and it was a prayerful process. And it was a beautiful thing because he's highly a spiritual person. So that was great. Other people who don't want to hear whatever the name Jesus or the name God, I will pray silently, but I definitely enter the relationship from a prayerful point of view because I want the presence of what I call God in the room when I'm chopping it up. Because I think it's only God who can give me the compassion, the understanding, the patience. I mean, this this job takes patience. You got to sit and listen for a long time. And sometimes I don't get the voice right. That's something we haven't talked about. I don't get it right the first time a lot. Sometimes I got to do it two or three or four or five times. That requires patience. And I need something to help me grow my patience. And that something, you know, I call God or love or whatever you want to call it. You mentioned Aretha Franklin. There's an important, maybe the biggest controversy of your professional life, at least in terms of public criticism, comes with the Aretha Franklin book. In 1999, Mm. you wrote a book with Aretha Franklin called Up From These Roots. Then later on, was it 2014? Yeah, I forgot. It's about uh, 18 or 15 years later. Yeah. Long time passed. Right, right. You you wrote a biography of Aretha Franklin, which, yeah. by the way, for me, was your finest work. I actually love well, the Aretha so Franklin much. biography. It's my favorite work of yours. That and the Marvin book. Are, but, but the Aretha book, because of its nature, I think, was incredibly interesting to me. But that raises some ethical issues, right? I mean, it, it does. You, you wrote a book with Aretha Franklin that you said left out lots of stuff. Aretha wasn't yeah. willing to go there. Right. And then 15 years later, you write a book about her that does go there. Right. Well, here's my answer to all that. Um, one is that it hurt me to hurt her. I did not want to hurt her. I don't want to hurt anybody. And I knew she wasn't going to like the book that I wrote. And that's why it took me 15 years to write the book. But at a certain point, I thought to myself, like with Marvin, and this sounds egotistical, and it may be egotistical, and if it is, it is, but I kind of thought to myself, who else is going to do this book? I know her really well. I know her brother. I know her two sisters. I know Narla. I know, you know, Luther. I knew John Hammond. I knew Jerry Wexler. I, I know all these characters, and I know the story. And if I don't tell the story, it ain't going to be told. So I felt, and it's a great story. You know, they're making it into a TV movie. They're making it into a movie movie. They're, you know, it's a great, great story. And But Aretha didn't want it told, right? I mean, that's why she didn't tell it to you. Right. But I made the choice to, and this sounds self-serving, and it is self-serving, I think, but I think it's also true. I felt a bigger obligation to history. Mm. In other words, had her book even hinted at what I felt was her true story, I would have never have written. Like, I'll never do a book on a biography of Ray Charles or B.B. King or Rick James, because, you know, I felt as though I got them. I felt as though in Rick James' case, I got his story. 
but I didn't feel as though I got a Reese story. I didn't feel as though I got, I, I didn't do my job. And in order to do the job, which is to leave the world with the larger truth about a Reese's, not just her personality, but her music, that I owed it to history. And again, here I am talking about such an egoless uh, ghostwriter. <laughs> I have to be this egomaniac talking to you. But I do think my book does serve history. I mean, I think if you want to know, uh, now, I also think her book is very important. I think the book that I ghosted for her is important because if you want to know how Arisa thought about herself and how she <laughs> wanted to be viewed as a world, that's a valuable book to read. And it has her truth to it. But I also felt more that if I don't do it and if I die, and ain't nobody who knew this world. I got into her world, deeply into her world. And I thought I wrote it respectfully. And, and again, I was discreet. There's a whole lot of stuff I didn't say. Oh, yeah. A whole lot of stuff I didn't <laughs> that say. I can, that I can vouch for. Yeah. Did it make artists or other people not want to work with you? I could see an artist saying, well, shit, in 10 years, he may write the book about me. May have, but I haven't had. I, I mean, if it did, they didn't tell me. I mean, there may be some gigs I didn't get because of that. And maybe there's some gigs I won't get because of but that. But no one's ever said like, hey. No, no one's ever told me, oh, well, I'm not going to work with you because you did this to Arisa after, you know. So, again, it was an aberration in that it didn't make me want to be a biographer. I felt like in the Marvin Gaye case, I got to tell this story. I was there. I became part of the story. I became part of her life. You know, when you spend two years as a person and, and you spend 18 years Chasing doing... Me research, even before you catch up with her, hours and hours with Irma and Cecil and Carolyn and the family and the heavy, I mean, what am I going to do with this stuff? Am I going to turn it over to a biographer? No, I'm going to be the biographer. Before you go, let's talk process just a little bit. You mentioned that you can write a book in three to six months. Yeah. There are a whole bunch of people whose heads spun around in a circle when you said that, uh, myself included. All right. What's your writing process like to do be able to do that? Well, first of all, I work every day. So I don't take days off. It's easier now because my children are grown and my wife and I are live alone together. But I work every day. I work joyfully. I look at my keyboard as a keyboard. And I look at if I'm going to play this keyboard. And I don't think I'm as good as Herbie Hancock, but I think of Herbie or Georgia Duke <laughs> or Robert Glasper. In other words, I think I am playing every day. I, and I am playing. So I, my analogies are never, I am, you know, a Philip Roth or Saul Bellow or James Baldwin. My analogies, I'm Oscar Peterson or, you know, Bud Powell. And I love to type. I actually love the act of typing. I like the sound. Of, and, and so I'm compulsive and I'm in a hurry uh, generally. And I write rhythmically. So if I hear a groove, the groove will perpetuate me. In other words, I'm a groove-oriented fan. I love Maze. I love Frankie Beverly. I mean, grooves are incredibly important to me. And the reason I think Maze or the time are such great groups is that they're all groove. You can't stop it. You can't stop listening to it. You can't stop moving. So I establish a groove early. The groove perpetuates me. I don't outline. I take the interviews. I read the interviews. I learn them. But as I write, I improvise. So, okay, just so I'm clear. Yeah. This is fascinating. And Bud Powell might actually be a really interesting analogy. By the way, everyone out there, there's a wonderful book called The Amazing Bud Powell by uh, Guthrie Rams, a great biography of, yeah. of Bud Powell. Yeah, check it out. Definitely. But um, you get all the information there is to get. You, yeah. The interviews, all the stuff. You go through it. You kind of understand it. Then there's no outline. You just pull out the horn <laughs> and start playing. Play. And, and I can hear the changes, you know, like jazz musicians, the piano player comps. And I can hear the changes. And the changes are the transcripts. I've learned the changes. So I've got the story in me. But I go to bed at night not knowing what's going to happen the next day. And I let the story come to me. And I need to be kind of surprised by the story. And that's why I get it done so quickly, because I'm caught up in the improvisational excitement. You know, if you listen to a train, any train, you know, my favorite things, Love Supreme or early train, late train, 
you're so caught up in that and you don't want it to stop. And, yeah. and you're amazed by his ideas and you're so happy. And that's my model for writing. You know, I love Philip Roth and I'm going through the nine volumes of the American Library all over again. I love him. But he always taught, and I didn't know him. I, I just love his work. But he always talks about the agony of writing and how the thing that, you know, and, and then you read about, you know, Faulkner and Hemingway became drunks and Cheever because they couldn't face the page. Man, I'm the opposite. I get up, I cannot wait to get to the keyboard. How many hours a day are you writing? Five, six, seven, some days eight, some days three. I'll stop. I mean, I'm a big kind of uh, YouTube guy. I'll stop and look at, you know, Marvin Winans and Fred Hammonds and Anita Baker or Little Wayne and do that for an hour and a half to get all charged up again. And then I'll go back. Uh, I, I can't listen to music while I write because I got to hear whatever groove I've created or whatever groove has been given to me. But I stop all the time during the day and listen to Commissioned or Errol Gardner or Eddie Carter, you know, wow. all the stuff that I love. And, and I'm constantly, those things to me, Luther and Cheryl Lynn on Soul Train Ooh. doing If, if This, this world, world Were Mine. I've watched that thing 500 times. And every time. It gets me every time. It's glory, hallelujah. I mean, I love Luther until I'm weak at the knees. You, you might know? actually be the world's second biggest Luther Vandross fan. I'm, I'm the biggest and I'm, well, I'm, I'm writing a, uh, I'm planning to write a biography of Luther. Well, I love that to death, man. And I just thought, I got to do an article on him with, uh, for uh, Rolling Stone. The only time they covered him, I had to get on my hands and knees and practically beg the editor to let me go out there. And so I spent a couple of weeks with him, but, you know, he didn't want to do a book. And, you know, he... He's no, t I mean, Luther doesn't yeah. say a word. He does not crack. Right. Craig right, Seymour right. wrote a wonderful biography of Luther. He yeah. did the best yeah. he could, but the, and it's yeah. a wonderful book. I actually enjoyed the book a great deal. But, yeah. he, but his vibe interviews with, I mean, Luther just wasn't cracking. Yeah. But I'm sorry, but that's a whole other. Whole no, other. no, no. But the, but, but the point I was making to tell you how I work so much and turn out so much work is that I'm constantly ingesting nutrients, vitamins during the day. And these mm. vitamins are Curtis Mayfield live in London or some sort of somebody will send me something or but Eddie Carter doing my favorite things or, you know, Sarah Vaughn's, you know. And this is music I've loved since I've been a kid, but there's also new music like J. Cole and, I, I mean, you know, and Trev Scott. And, and so during the day, I am doing what I've always done, which is ingesting art that inspires and motivates me. So it's music, music, music for me. Now, again, I am inspired by Philip Roth. I'm inspired by E.S. Wharton. I'm, I'm, I'm inspired by a lot of people. I don't mean it's all music, but they don't make me get up and jump to the computer. Mm. Do you, you know what I'm saying? Do you have time to read? I usually read at night between 10 and 12. I read for a couple of hours, put myself to sleep. And, and I like, particularly during this quarantine time, I've read a lot of people I haven't read, like E.S. Wharton, go back to the an era of American history that I don't know anything. I've just wanted to get my head out of the Trump America. And so I've escaped to Edwardian fiction that I didn't really know very well. I like Italian literature. I like to read that. That's an escape. No ghostwriters? You, know, do you, you don't read like ghostwriters or music biographers? Or does that like, is that like, does that throw off your mojo? No, I mean, I read in the field. I'm trying to think of I thought Elton's book was good. When Elton's book came out, it was, it was written by a pal of his. I thought Elton's book was great. I thought Keith's book was great. You know, when Al Green's book came out, I read Al's book. There's a new uh, Nat Cole biography by Will Friedwall. I'm halfway through that because I love Nat Cole. I read, you know, I read in my field, but, you know, it's just words and music, man. I mean, that's basically it. And, and I like art. I like, I'm inspired by art. And I've been able to kind of, mentor a couple of people. And I wish I had done more of that because I really think that history is served by ghostwriters who will get with people who need their stories told, but people who just don't know how to write a book. There's a thing we do, and I have to do this to you, and I hate it. Let, let me not lie to you, uh, David. Right. I actually love doing this to my guests. It, it's, it's, okay. it, it completely tortures them. It's called Buy It, Borrow it or burn it. I give you three books. One you buy, one you borrow, one you burn. 
Now, normally I have them take other people's books, but this time I'm going to, since you've written 17,621 books, right. I'm going to cho- make you choose between your own children here. All right. Uh, Divided Soul. Right. Brother Ray. Uh-huh. And When I Left Home. The buddy, the, uh, see, now it gets tough. I don't want to burn any of those. I know you don't. That's what makes the game torture. So for those that are, <laughs> uh, When I Left Home is his is the biography or the autobiography of, of buddy, buddy Guy. I guess I'd borrow Brother Ray. I'd buy the Marvin book because I think that's very substantial in, in some way. And it's such a strange amalgamation of biography and autobiography. And I guess I'd have to burn Buddy, but with... Love. Terrible pain. <laughs> Terrible pain because I, I adore him and he just plays the shit out of the guitar. And yes. He's got a great story and Chicago and Muddy and all those guys. And and I was so happy to do that at that, you know. That is a tough choice, but you made it. You made it through. David, honestly, <laughs> when the final story on American music is told, you will be a part of it. Well, thank you, sir. And if there is a conversation about ghostwriting that will ever be had in the literary world, you should be at the center of it. I mean, you, your body of work is extraordinary. Uh, your contribution well, is so considerable. Much, and I'm so grateful uh, that you hung out with me today. Happy to do it. And I had a good time talking to you. And I appreciate all your questions. And I am going to leave myself. I'm going to leave this conversation asking myself, am I a hack? I love that question. <laughs> you are not, sir. Ones. You are absolutely oh, I may not be. a hack. I may be. We'll talk, man. <laughs> talk to you. Okay, brother. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Coffee and Books. If you want to purchase any of the books discussed on today's episode, go to UncleBobbies.com. That's UncleBobbies.com. Make sure to check out all other episodes of Coffee and Books wherever you listen to your podcasts.